I want to take a moment before the show to let all of you know about a new horror anthology that I just read and really enjoyed. The book is called Shredded, and uh, that title is a double entendre because this is a collection of body horror stories about sports and fitness. So double meaning of shredded there. Now, the stories are awesome. Uh, These include pieces about a murdery yoga cult, also why you really shouldn't use performance-enhancing drugs, and also why you definitely should wear a helmet. I really hope that someday we'll have an opportunity to cover at least one of the stories in Shredded over on Elder Sign someday, but until then, I hope that you'll grab a copy for yourself. I've put a link in the show notes to make that easy for you, but of course you can also order the book from your local bookshop. Again, the book is called Shredded, and I hope you grab a copy today. Welcome back to Elder Sign. Weird Fiction Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're going to be talking about The Thing in the Weeds by William Hope Hodgson. This was originally published in 1912. This story was nominated to us by a Patreon supporter, and that is the way we get a lot of stories here, and we love it. So thank you so much. Yeah, this is awesome. This is the fourth installment in Hodgson's Sargasso Sea stories. Uh, we've been doing these in order, so we have we have read the first three, though it's been a long time actually since we've we've done any of them. So I was really excited to to get back into this cycle of stories here. And actually, I guess at this point, then we're going to be halfway through. So I'm already dreaming of a, a wrap up episode, but all of that, <laughs> all of that is far in the future, and. This is the shortest of these stories. I also think it's probably the most straightforward. So I don't really want to give anything away here at the top of the show. So I think, Brandon, let's just get straight into it. Yeah, there there is a really fast way to recap this episode. There's a slow way as well. That's what we're going to do. But the quick way would just be to give you an immediate answer to the question, what is the thing in the weeds? And maybe that would be enough for this story. But as I said, we're taking the longer way around because... That's what we do on this show. So (laughs) The Thing in the Weeds is a story told from the first person perspective of a ship's third mate. He tells us in the first sentence that what we are about to read is an extraordinary tale. The narrator remembers so much about the night that this tale took place on because of the happenings, the extraordinariness. And here we, you know, the phrase the happening is used here. It's an M. Night Shyamalan movie. I don't know. Watch it at your own peril, I suppose. But don't, don't. <laughs> I should mention here that uh, in this story, the thing in the weeds, for this ship, the trade winds have really moved the ship further west than the narrator had ever been before or since. All right. So on the night that this story is taking place, the narrator was walking on the weather side of the poop deck with the first mate. It was between 10 and 10.30 p.m., uh, and the two men are talking about the superstitions that are held by old sailors when they begin to smell something pretty bad. The smell is strong, though it dissipates from time to time, and it's a smell that is familiar to the narrator, and everyone on watch can smell this odor. No one likes it. I mean, they ask around and call around the ship. The first mate eventually says that the smell reminds him of an old derelict he was once on that smelled like, quote, 
centuries-old bilge water, dead men, and seaweed. So it's a rough, <laughs> rough combination <laughs> of smells, I think. And while these men are working on what the precise components of this unsavory olfactory situation is, mist rolls in and everything gets super quiet. And then something from the mist seems to knock off the first mate's cap as he's looking over the ship's railing. I mean, something actually does knock off his cap. It's just, it seems to be invisible from the mist. And then the narrator hears something near the rail where the first mate has just been. So the narrator tells the first mate to hang back a little bit while he goes to get a light. And then when the narrator returns with the light, the first mate is gone. This is an interesting way to open a scary story, I think, right? Hodgson immediately leans into a description that's really quite rich in sensory material, but it's not sight or sound, which are, you know, usually our horror cues. Rather, it is smell, which we can associate, you know, frequently with the disgust or revulsion, which we get here, but not usually fear. But then Hodgson does you know, take us right into the fear. It gives us a quick descent into horror mode with the arrival of silence and mist. And it makes, you know, whatever's going on here makes it seem supernatural. Though I think that really at this point, we know that that's not going to be the case because simply that's that's just not how Hodgson has operated in the previous Sargasso Sea stories, right? There's not really ever been a supernatural element, but this feels like, feels like the arrival of Dracula. You really want Karnacki to show up and, and do some damage here at this point. This is a, a perfect opening, I think, for a Karnacki story instead of maybe a Sargasso Sea story. But still, I think Hodgson captures some really unsettling moments here in, in the early part of the story that I really loved. Yeah, I think a, a crossover, a Karnacki Sargasso Sea story, which Hodgson did not write, but somebody should. Somebody absolutely should. That's just waiting to happen, I think. But uh, all right, let's return to the Sargasso Sea here. The The narrator tries to get the attention of some other sailors to tell them you know, that the first mate has gone missing. Uh, one sailor, a senior on the watch, notices that there is some blood on the deck where the first mate was. And then... Once again, something flashes in the mist. No one can make out what it is, but everyone steps back from the railing on the weather deck and hustles inside to the ship's saloon. Once they're inside the, the ship here, the narrator finds the captain. His name is Captain Jeldy, and he tells him what's been happening on, on, on first watch here. The captain gets out some revolvers and he passes them around, really only three, and so now a few men, including the captain and the narrator, head back up to that poop deck. The mist is still heavy, and the narrator points out the blood on the deck to the captain, and then everyone starts hearing some weird sounds. Something is moving down on the main deck. The captain orders some of the men back inside the ship, and so they leave to be safe. And so now it's just the captain and the narrator standing around outside, hoping to confront the thing that's now on the main deck. They hear it moving around and the captain says, you know, you better answer me as they're calling out to him or else he's going to shoot his gun. But rather than a voice, the men outside hear a loud slamming sound and then silence. Then they hear a second crash and the buying of sheep 
And then the captain is like, uh, let's go. <laughs> so they do. They go back inside the ship. And that's the end of chapter one. I didn't tell you, but there are two chapters to this story. Uh, yeah, you, you left out the best line here, which is uh, when the mate says, what the devil's this hanky panky? <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> I wanted you to read it, Glenn. Yeah, I, I didn't thanks. think I could do it justice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start using that more often. I'm going to use it to the point that no one ever wants to hear me say it again, which is probably a point <laughs> I've already reached, really, to be honest. But uh, no, seriously, uh, you know, thinking more about you know, what's happening here, uh, this is the part of the story, I think, that drags a bit. Uh, we have encountered this type of section in each of these Sargasso Sea stories. It's a a section that really just relies on the layout of the the ship. What I mean, and what I mean by that is that you know Hodgson gives us these characters running to this part of the ship and that part of the ship, and then yet another part of the ship. And he does this in a way that you know is probably terrifying to experience, right? If you were really there on the ship, and and Hodgson himself had a lot of experience of ships, but I don't really think that these moments of these Sargasso Sea stories are told in such a way that it frightens me. And for me, at least, that's because what I end up doing is trying to build a mental map of the ship. Like, I'm not coming equipped with enough sense experience of what it is to be on a ship that I I end up intellectualizing this too much, trying to figure out where everyone is and what's going on. But even still, there is an actual best line here, which I will read into the microphone because I think this is just magnificent. The narrator says, And all the time there was upon me the brutal, frightening expectancy of something reaching in at us from out of that everlasting darkness and mist that held all the sea and the night, so that we were just three mist-shrouded hidden figures peering nervously. And that line really gets me. And I just wish that Hodgson had spent you know, more words building up this mood rather than giving us the layout of the ship, giving us a lot of running around because, boy, that mood there, that that's killer stuff. He, he sets up what could be a great series of events so well by having the first mate go missing. And that should be the establishing of the stakes here. But then he doesn't follow through. Nobody goes missing after that. Everybody's safe inside. You know, this is no Ripley on the Nostromo, right? This is just people running around a ship feeling fear, but nothing happens. And so there's a disconnect, I think, between um, what Hodgson is accomplishing on the prose level in terms of telling us that his characters are afraid and then the reader feeling fear, which is really what you want, I think, in a horror story. It's what you go to horror for. Right. Yeah. I hadn't thought about this in terms of, well, alien, but that's kind of what is happening here. And yeah, alien and 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 its its imitators and also the the things that uh, the the creative team behind Alien were were drawing on sort of more immediately are I think probably successors to exactly this type of of story. And so, you know, this is a place where I don't I don't want to bang on Hodgson too much for not understanding, you know, our sensibilities, our horror sensibilities here in the early 21st century, many of which, perhaps even most of which, have in fact been shaped not by what's on a page, but by what's on a screen of of some sort. But it's hard also, you know, not to read this and think, I would like to write a story like this or read more stories like this that that play into those sensibilities more and to see where, you know, Hodgson could have tweaked this or tweaked that. Uh, it's certainly a, a, a manner in which I engage with, you know, any of these stories that are 100 or more years old. Well, well, let's return to the story then. We're, we're in chapter two, and everyone is inside the ship waiting for dawn. They're too terrified to go see what's on the main deck. 
But as the day comes on, the captain lets the crew know that it's time to handle the situation. He and the narrator and the second mate head out from the saloon back topside. They open the door and it still really smells bad. (laughs) It's silent outside and it's still misty. So nothing's really changed except that it's not dark. The men investigate the decks and find out that the hen coop has been shifted around. So that was at least one of the sounds that they heard the night before. And now the sun is burning off the mist so they can see things a little bit more clearly. The ship has basically been marooned in a sense or becalmed in a sea of weeds. The weeds surround the ship for a quarter of a mile. And yeah, now we've got the weeds here from the title. So that's pretty cool. And we we know that the thing isn't the ship. So now we need to know what the thing is in the weeds. And they look down, the men look down into the water, into the weeds, and they see a giant eye. And then the thing moves and it's a giant squid. So if you want the super short recap of the story, it's this. The thing in the weeds is a squid. (laughs) (laughs) But as we move to the end of the story now, there's a quick action scene because the captain fires at the squid. Seems like a a kind of silly move, but it causes the squid to attack the ship. As I said, this is a foolish action, but the narrator and the captain have more than just pistols with which to attack the creature. They have blasting cartridges. So they light one and they toss it at the squid and it blows up, either killing or badly wounding the squid, which slides back into the sea. Then the breeze kicks up again and the ship hightails it out of there. But what of the first mate? Well, he didn't die. He just fell through the skylight into the sails. The team gets the first mate to bed. And when they get clear of the weeds, they look back and they see something slithering. And they're glad to be clear of the weeds and of the thing in them. And back to the regular loneliness of the sea. And that's the end of it. Yeah, loneliness of the sea is a is just another great phrase here. Uh, in fact, let me let me just read the whole line because it's awesome. And we sailed away northwards with strengthening trades and left that patch of monstrousness to the loneliness of the sea. And I just love this line. It's got some sadness to it. It's kind of kind of wistful even. There's a a real beautiful sense of melancholy here. I guess we'd call it bittersweetness or something like that where Yes, this night was terrifying. This whole event was extraordinary, maybe super ordinary. And it was a moment that punctuated what otherwise is a dull ache and loneliness of the life of a a merchant marine or something like that. So yeah, this line really adds a lot of color, I think, to the narrator and to the story itself. Yeah, yeah, and 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 patch of monstrousness is kind of a cool phrase as well. Like I want to, I, I want to see what's the painting of that and so on. It's it's great. Well, before we move into the brief discussion today, I want to take a moment to thank our listeners. Behind the scenes, something we you know we don't really talk about all that often, but behind the scenes, we went almost five months without recording a regularly scheduled episode of this show, and we've been back now for really just an episode or two. And so when I got those all done and put together, and I went to schedule those episodes with our hosting service, I noticed that we've had nearly a fifteen percent increase in downloads for really all the episodes of the show, and. 
that is entirely due to to you. It's entirely due to our listeners sharing our episodes on social media, talking about us on discussion boards, uh, places like Reddit and Facebook and that sort of thing, and also reviewing the show on various podcatchers. Uh, and that's that's all because of you. We haven't done anything to to promote ourselves really very well in a long time. And we just wanted to take a minute here to say that we really appreciate that work that you all have done in helping new listeners find us, uh, which of course helps us stay on the air. So thank you for that. It is the way that we get the word out on the show. We haven't really been able to afford marketing as a network. And so for you, our listeners, to spread uh, the work that we do here through word of mouth, through reviews, really helps us. And so if you're wondering how you can support the network, one way you can do it is obviously becoming a Patreon supporter. But another way is to get the word out. Post episodes you like on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, join a subreddit that shares an overlap with what we do on the show and uh, recommend episodes or just review us so we become more visible in the search engines where people are looking for podcasts that are doing the type of work we do here. But yeah. I have to echo your thanks, Glenn, here. The people that have been doing this, who have been supporting the show, it's so big. It's so important to us. Um, and we love it. And it's just, it's honestly, we're honored by your participation as listeners of our shows. Um, so thank you so much. Yeah, I, I was really surprised when I saw what the numbers were. And I, I just really, really appreciate it. So again, yeah, thank you so much. But uh, let's do what we're here to do, which is uh, get, <laughs> talk about this story. So we'll get into the discussion segment here. Uh, look, this is the shortest of these Sargasso Sea stories. And so I think this is probably going to be the shortest discussion segment too. I mean, I've really, really only got two topics here. And the first is kind of a Lark and I, I. What I want to do, Brandon. I think we have done this before on some of the the previous installments in this series. Is try to find a link with the previous stories. Uh, do you do you have one here? Are there any characters you think that we've encountered before? I mean, anything other than the fact that you know they all take place in the Sargasso Sea. I don't know. I mean, there's this mention of the derelict, which feels like it's meant to call to mind the mystery of the derelict, which is the last story uh, in the Sargasso Sea cycle that we read. And so I get the sense that maybe that derelict broke free and was a ghost ship and this other guy found it with his another crew that he was on and boarded it. And, um, you know, it smelled as bad as you'd expect a ghost <laughs> ship to smell where there are still dead bodies on it. But I don't know, this this question intrigues me and I hope you have found more than than I did. No, that's the only answer I had as okay. well. And I, you know, I had to go back and kind of reread that story to see if the descriptions lined up. And I, I think it is probably worth reading what the mate says here, because the description's pretty cool. He says, I'll tell you what it smells like, mister. And that's like a mighty old derelict I once went aboard in the North Atlantic. She was a proper old timer, and she gave us all the creeps. There was just this funny, dank, rummy sort of century-old bilge water and the dead men and seaweed. I can't stop thinking we're nigh some lonesome old packet out there, and a good thing we've not much way on us. And so I did some mental gymnastics trying to you know, do exactly what you just did, Brandon, which was come up with the idea that, well, maybe it, you know that derelict from that story broke free or something, you know, and so this mate here has encountered that. But I think that what's actually happening is that it's not this 
mate here. He's not someone we've encountered before. And I don't think that this ship that he's talking about is that ship. I think what we're meant to infer here, actually, is that this current ship is actually very close to that derelict, right? That this is taking place not just in the Sargasso Sea, but that it's taking place at the exact same spot as the mystery of the derelict, and that they actually are smelling the the mysterious derelict from the previous story, even though they don't ever see it. That's my... That's my sense here. That That's a really excellent point. That could absolutely be the case. Though I think by the end of the story, my sense is, is what they're selling, smelling is just just a, a, a clumpy mass of seaweed that's like rotting on some level. You know, it's just, it's just stuck there in this mass. One thing I've also learned just from you reading that description um, that reminded me of one thing I really enjoyed about this story was the ad for, was the ad using the adjective rum or rummy to describe just about anything that's maybe not good. You know, that's a rum stink out there. That's a rummy smell. And maybe they're describing something that smells like rum, but it's used a few times here as kind of sailor jargon. And uh, uh, yeah, I like that. That's got to come back too. Yeah, well, that can be your phrase and uh, what the devil's this hanky-panky can be mine. We're each <laughs> taking something from this that our, our wives are certainly going to wish we had. <laughs> yes, I, th- I think that's true of most of the stories that we read. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, fair enough. We should let them do an episode of the show someday just so they can they can air their grievances. But, uh, <laughs> all right, well, I've got a, a bigger question here. It's really more conceptual. As I said during the, the recap segment, I was really approaching this story with my own writer's hat on and uh, thinking about how I might like to write a story about, you know, a monster on uh, a, a ship and, you know, how does the crew deal with that and that sort of thing. And thinking about how I would go about doing that, especially if I were setting it in, uh, you know, the, the 19th century or maybe the early 20th century on a, you know, on a sailing ship, you know, how would I go about writing that for an audience that's more contemporary to us. And that got me just thinking about the horror element of this story, or or even really, you know, the extent to which this is actually a horror story for us when we read it. And I guess the question I'm getting at here, Brandon, is are we scared of big animals anymore? Like, is this, is this, is, would encountering a big squid in the ocean scare us now? Or was Jaws the pinnacle of this? I mean, I'm really glad you brought up Jaws because the action scene of this story, I think Steven Spielberg or John Milius or whoever, you know, patched together the screenplay of Jaws totally just took that scene, right? From the blasting caps and throwing them at the shark and... Uh, yeah. So I think this type of story does have a long lasting legacy. Maybe this story specifically was something that, you know, the the big guys in the 70s, you know, the people who invented blockbusters and stuff like that and horror movies, we're reading these things as kids or reprints of them. And um, so we end up with uh, a legacy of horror that does directly tie back to these William Hope Hodgson sea stories. But I don't think we're really frightened of big animals anymore. I mean, as we're recording this, the you know numbers for the new Jurassic World movies are coming out. They're not doing so hot. Uh, I think the you know Jurassic World, the first one, was a kind of a surprise hit anyway. You know, making Comcast a billion dollars or something like that as a movie about dinosaurs. 
I don't know if people went back to see that movie out of nostalgia or because they wanted to feel scared of large animals. But yeah, I don't feel like megafauna are really a big trope in movies anymore. We don't have that. It's almost always been dinosaurs. I guess we have 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. There's the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Um, Abyss, right? There was a, a movie with Kristen Stewart that came out not too long ago that was like a giant sea monster movie. That was okay. That was a pretty decent horror movie uh, that took place underwater with a giant creature attacking the uh, you know living quarters in the futuristic underwater science base. I, I love stuff like that. That stuff goes back to stories like this. But yeah, to me, it's not a common thing that we see in movies anymore. And giant animals, I think, have almost never scared me. What scares an audience, I think, about a giant creature is what Hodgson gets right in the story, which is presenting them as having elements of them that are just barely visible, but ultimately the creature's too big to see in one go. Right. What's scary here is that you don't know immediately what is going on. And I think actually the revelation that it's a giant squid is kind of a, a release from the tension here, right? It says, oh, it's just a giant squid. That that could still crush the ship and we we need to get out of here. But, uh, you know, I don't know. We thought there was a vampire in the mist or something like that. You know, we thought something supernatural was going on. So that's so that's fine. Because, yeah, I was thinking even about, you know, other nautical stories that we have that are more contemporary to us. And I think probably the example that I would bring up here would be The Terror by Dan Simmons, oh, right. which which has been turned into a TV show. I have not watched any of that. I, I don't think you have either. No, that's right. I haven't. And it's a great book. I love that book. I would love to find a way to do that on ATOS someday, though it's, it's like 2,000 pages. So who knows when, <laughs> with little kids at home, if when we'll find a time to, to do that. But that story actually has quite a bit in common with this one, at least on the surface level. But I think that Dan Simmons takes a lot of his cues for writing the horror really from Who Goes There, which is the novella that becomes the the classic cult movie, The the Thing. And so it's, you know, not a like, you know, so what's scary there is not that they encounter some like giant polar bear or something like that, right? It's really all the the unknown elements and the the mystery and so on that gets extremely terrifying in in that book. And so, yeah, this is, I think, just a an idea that has left horror for us. But in the early part of the 20th century, also the late 19th century, uh, dudes go into the jungle, dudes go into the ocean and find a really big gorilla, find a really big squid or whatever, you know, man-eating lions was a huge part of like adventure horror fiction that just doesn't I just don't think it does it for us anymore. And this is where I want to circle us back around to something that you brought up in the recap, Brandon, which is alien, right? I think when we're going to tell this story, we don't do it with big animals anymore. We do it in space. We set these types of stories in space so that there can still be this element of the unknown. And that's really what it comes down to. Uh, we live in... Uh society, I don't know, that's a phrase I guess people use, but our culture at least is one that gives us this false false sense that anything that we don't know is known by someone and therefore knowable by us, even though what we're doing is getting a picture and a paragraph from Wikipedia about it. Like our sense of what knowledge is has really 
changed, I think, to become so surface level that if we see giant squid and I go to Wikipedia or Google and type in giant squid, it's totally demystified. But that's not the case in uh, the early 20th century. And so our sense of the unknown, what it takes for us to feel the true discomfort of encountering the unknown requires a lot more than it did 110 years ago. Yeah, I blame zoos, right? I blame zoos for this. Yes. There's, a, there's a big difference in seeing a grizzly bear in a zoo than encountering one by yourself in the, the wilderness. They are both experiences I have had, and they are very different experiences. Yeah. You really ought to be scared of a grizzly bear, it turns out. You really you really ought to. But yeah, we've been desensitized to that. And so this type of horror just doesn't doesn't work for us anymore. And I, I it makes that makes me sad. That make you know, his story ends on kind of a sad note. And I think my my thinking about horror as a genre through the lens of this story. Has, has made me a little bit sad this week as well. And I think that's probably a good note on which to bring this episode to a close. So I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. And um, let me just encourage you to rediscover your sense of wonder if you're able to. Uh, don't go to Wikipedia with every question. Just just don't know stuff, maybe. And you'll be able to enjoy William Hopotchson's stories a lot more. But in any event, uh, this was a blast to do. And we're really grateful for our Patreon supporters. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Before we go, I do want to say thank you again to all the listeners who help spread the word about our shows by writing reviews and talking about us on social media. As we said, that is a huge help. It's paid off recently, and we're just extremely grateful for it. The next time, we're going to be back with the short story, Super Frog Saves Tokyo by Haruki Murakami. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.